The scripture reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1, 5, and 6, and the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. It can be found on pages 807 and 222, respectively, in the Black Bibles. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malone and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malone and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why would you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and would bear, should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. From where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you, will die, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite and her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Jan. Thanks, Kevin. Long Old Testament passage, check. Hard words to say, check. Thank you all. 
Um, my name is John Trapp. I'm the senior pastor here at Christ the King. It's so good to be with all of you this morning. Um, just want to welcome you, particularly if this is your first time at Christ the King. We're excited to have you. We've been going through this uh, series on the women of Jesus uh, in, in Je- Jesus' genealogy. There's five women who are interestingly listed in the genealogy of, genealogy of Jesus, which was not a practiced thing in the first century. It's a surprising thing to see them in there. And what I hope we've been able to see is that these women actually offer us a window into the heart of God and to who he cares for and to who he associates himself with. And at Advent, we've been talking about the reality that God shows up. Advent means arrival. God shows up in all of these different people's lives. Uh, Madeline Lingle who you may be familiar with her, she wrote A Wrinkle in Time on reflecting on the incarnation of the advent of Jesus Christ. She says, the virgin birth has never been a major stumbling block in my struggle with Christianity. It's far less mind-boggling than the power of all creation stooping so low as to become one of us. You hear what she's saying? She's saying, man, yeah, the virgin birth, that's That's a pretty crazy miracle. But you know what's wild is that we believe, we're saying that the one who made the 28,000 foot Himalayas and the 31,000 foot deep Mariana Trench and the planet Jupiter and the cosmos became a person. That is mind-boggling. And what I think is both mind-boggling and beautiful is that when he became a person, he showed us the kind of people he associates himself with in these women. The first three women that we're considering all, they they have a lot in common. They're women, they're poor, they're socially and economically vulnerable. They're all Gentiles, which means they all would have been outsiders, considered outsiders to the people of God. And they each, as I said, show us different windows into the heart of God and how he shows up in our life. Tamar, who we looked at first, shows us, reveals us how God shows up in the life of people who feel forgotten or abandoned. Rahab demonstrates us how God shows up in the lives of people who are needy sinners. And this morning, I want you to see that in Ruth and Naomi's story, we see that God shows up in the lives of people who have deep pain and grief and even regret. That God shows up in their life. And Christmas is a time where the pain that we maybe have felt in our own families, perhaps the regrets that we have about our lives, are remembered and brought to the foreground. But I want you to see that this Christmas, that that actually God shows up in our griefs. He cares to show up in our regrets. So let's pray and ask that he would help us to see that now. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks. We give you thanks for this time to study your word and to consider who you claim to be in it. And we pray that you'd help us to to really see your character, to see who you are, 
And we pray that in doing so, in seeing who you are and seeing who we are and in need of you, that you would help us, um, help us to believe. And uh, we pray that your spirit would be at work in, in and among us now. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's story, as I said, is about Ruth, but it's also really about Naomi too, particularly chapter one of Ruth, which is Naomi, uh, Naomi is Ruth's mother-in-law. And uh, three things that I want you to see in these women's lives. One, regretful decisions. Regretful decisions that are made. And then two, grieving the aftermath. And then three, God's providence in all of it. So first, what regretful decisions are made. This story begins in verse one with a famine. And it's easy for us in the 21st century with like HEBs and Kroger's to just cruise past that detail that there was a famine in the land. There's a book called Nothing to Envy written by Barbara Demick. And in it, she records the experience of six men and women who have escaped and defected from North Korea. These, these are modern day stories, and I would say modern day stories of famine that she records. And in it, she records the story of a woman named Dr. Kim. And she tells about the first day that Dr. Kim had left North Korea and was in China. And Dr. Kim said, you know, I was a, I was a believer. I was a believer in what we were doing in North Korea for a long, long time. And, and when I got to, to China, I was kind of hoping that everyone in China was as poor as we were. And she said that notion was shattered the first morning that she got to China and was walking the streets and she saw something that would be like seeing a unicorn for us. And it was a bowl of rice just sitting on the ground. And not only was it a hot, steaming bowl of rice, but it had warm meat. She'd never seen anything, she hadn't seen anything like this for, she didn't know how long. And she was wondering why it was sitting there and who it was for until she heard the bark of the dog. And she realized, just a second before the dog ran into view, that that food was for an animal. And that doctors in North Korea ate worse than dogs in China. That's famine. And that's the kind of famine that this family is experiencing in Bethlehem. Elimelech, Naomi, their boys. And so they do what, what many of us do in the face of suffering and scarcity. And it's make compromises. We make compromises in the face of suffering and scarcity. Here they are in God's promised land that God over and over has spared for them, has given them as this gift, and they bump into suffering. They bump into scarcity, and they leave. They leave the land that God's given them. And the place that they go is a curious choice. They go to Moab. Moab is a place that we know God's people have already once been enslaved in for 18 years under this king named King Eglon that you can read about in the book of Judges. It's a pretty fun story, kids. You, probably, you might like that one. Check that one out. Ask your parents to read it to you. 
But God saves them from the Moabites, this pagan group of people, by the way. See in other parts of the scriptures that their, that their God that the Moabites served, Kamosh, the way that you worship Kamosh was by sacrificing human beings to Kamosh. And so suffering and scarcity hits this family and they make compromises. And they go to this place, this pagan place. They get um, inculcated into the culture. Their boys marry Moabite women. And that's not unlike us, if we're honest. When we hit suffering and scarcity, making compromises. Perhaps, perhaps you've seen that in others' lives or in your own life. One of the ways that I've seen that as someone who did campus ministry for seven years is the compromises that, that people make and that we make in dating life. Scan the horizon, eligible spouses, and it can feel very scarce. And there's a fear of suffering and being alone. We have a, maybe a distorted view of singleness, by the way, in the church that informs that. That singleness is a gift. But this fear and this, of this suffering and this scarcity can cause Christian men and women to make compromises. To marry somebody that, that God's word is very clear is unwise for us to marry. And it's not just because God is surly and grumpy and doesn't want a Christian to not marry, to marry someone who's not a Christian. It's really wise. It's God's wisdom. Because here's what happens. Here's what happens as that relationship kind of gets drawn out. Let's say that marriage happens. One of two things is going to occur. Because for the Christian, their reality, the most important thing about them is their faith. And if their, if their now spouse isn't a Christian, they're not going to understand the most central thing about them. So one of two things has to happen for that Christian individual. Either, Tim Keller puts it this way, either God has to move out into the suburbs of your life or your spouse does. Right? Either you're going to get more distant from God and closer to your spouse or more distant from your spouse as they don't understand kind of who you are and what you're about. It's God's wisdom that he's given us. But we make compromises in the face of scarcity. Or perhaps, perhaps you grew up and you saw lots of people around you had more than you. And you told, you, you, you told yourself that that was not going to happen when you grew older. That you were going to do whatever it took to not experience maybe the same scarcity that you experienced as a kid. And so you make compromises. You make compromises in the way that you manage your money. You make compromises in the jobs that you agree to do or not to do. You do whatever it takes. Work however many hours it takes at the expense of your mental health or your familial health. We make compromises in the face of scarcity because we don't want to suffer. But do you see the irony of what happens here in Moab? They make compromises and they go to this place so that they can live, so that they can eat and live, and they go to Moab and die. Naomi's husband, her two boys, die. And there's a brutal irony in this story. And so we find Naomi grieving the aftermath, looking back at the last 10 years of her life, and I want you to consider what that must have been like for her. 
to, to consider the, her past 10 years, to consider the loss of her husband, the loss of her two boys. And she says what her experience is in verse 21. She says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. I never should have gone away. What were we thinking going to Moab? Why did we do that? Perhaps you have regrets like Naomi. Should have never taken that job. I shouldn't have gone to that school. That spouse who divorced me, I should have never married them in the first place. What was I thinking? What was I thinking to let my kid be friends with those kids? What were we thinking raising our child? Why do we put them in that school and not this school? If we had done things differently, maybe, maybe we'd have some different results. What were we thinking? We do this with hindsight, don't we? Hindsight is twenty twenty. Y'all, and we do this particularly when we're suffering. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I, I've been doing this, this this fall. A lot of you know that in September, September 19th, when I woke up to preach my third sermon here, I woke up to a deaf ear, my right ear completely deaf, completely gone, and it hasn't come back. And we've seen great doctors in Houston, and there is a unanimous chorus from those doctors, which is, your hearing is not coming back. We're, we're so sorry. Um, and the, the, it's not a great explanation. I got some common cold virus. It wasn't COVID. We got COVID a month later, so it's been like an awesome health season for the traps. Wasn't COVID. <laughs> but I got, I got a common cold. It's just like so weak, right? I, I just got, I got the common cold virus, but it hit me at the wrong time in the wrong spot and completely obliterated all the cilia, which is like the inner ear nerves. And my ear and those don't regenerate. They're gone. It's over. So you'll, I'm, I'm getting, you can pray for me. I'm getting um, surgery in February for a cochlear implant, which I'm really thankful for, but it's not the solution I wanted. And I've thought like throughout this, like, man, what if we didn't get that virus? Where did we get it from? Where did we get that cold? If we had done, maybe if we had done those, those things differently, if we hadn't gone there to that party or to this thing, then like I wouldn't, you know, you see how that, like we just play those games in our head. Maybe, maybe you've had something like that yourself. And the reality is <laughs> believing that God is in control doesn't keep us from bitterness. Like, I believe God is in control, and it'd be real easy for me. And I felt that, like, well up inside me, a bitterness about losing my hearing and not being able to hear my children laugh in that ear again, not being able to hear music again. Listening to music, by the way, with one ear, it feels like, like chewing up a really good meal and then spitting it out and not swallowing it. It's so frustrating. It's easy to get bitter about that. And you see Naomi in verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. Naomi means pleasant. Not pleasant, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very, very bitterly with me. Do you see that? She, she is agreeing that God is in control. She's calling him Almighty. God is in control and I'm bitter about it, is what she's saying. Why would God let this happen? Why would he let us move to Moab? Why did he let my kids die and my husband now, friends, the first way that we move out of bitterness is to have this kind of honesty. She's brutally honest with her experience. 
And my question for you is, do you believe that you have freedom to be this honest with God or with other Christians or with your church? Peter Scazzaro uh, wrote a book that I would highly recommend to you called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Here's one of the money quotes. He says, in neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves and lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. We forget that change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. The way that we start to move out of bitterness is by first being brutally honest with God. And the Bible gives us categories to do that. I want you to imagine, like next week, maybe you decide, like, you come to church, maybe you bring a friend to church, checking out Christ the King, and we open up and we sing Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Friend would probably be like, what church is this? That was Israel's hymn book. They actually gathered around and sang words like that. The Bible gives us categories to be this this honest with God and with ourselves. It actually commends it. We need it. We need to be this honest. You know the next verse in Psalm 22 is though? You are enthroned. God is enthroned. He's in control. So the question then is like, what do we do with that? We're experiencing this hardship and yet he's in control. I was talking to one of the missionaries that we support, our church supports in Malaysia. And he was recounting a story about his experience with pain on the mission field. And he suffered a a, a deep personal loss. And he said while he was processing this loss with somebody from their church, he was crying to them, and weeping to them. They had this long conversation. And kind of at the end, the missionary said, trying to sum it up, trying to wrap it up, said, well, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, which is a quote from Job 1. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And the church member looked at him and said, finish the verse. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How do we bless the name of the Lord who is in control of the giving and the taking away? The only way that we can do this, the only thing thing that's going to keep us from bitterness, friends, is believing both that, yes, God is in control and he's for your good. He's for our good. We see this in his providence in this passage, and I would argue in, in our lives. Final point, God's providence. The technical definition, which is a great definition, God's providence that um, we would all agree, or our church kind of has agreed to. It's from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. God's providence is his holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. God, we believe God is in control of everything. And we see this 
We see God's kind providence in Naomi's life. Even in this passage, this woman who is, who is experiencing deep grief, deep grief, deep regret, deep suffering. And I want you to see a couple of ways that God is providing for her. First, in verse 9, he gives her a daughter-in-law who shares tears with her. Which there, there are few better gifts to receive when you are in grief than somebody who simply grieves with you. It's something for us to remember too, by the way. Ruth, Ruth doesn't just say, hey, you, you believe in God Almighty. He's got a plan. He's going to work it out. There's a temptation to do that when someone is suffering, to kind of take out a Romans 8, 28 stamp. God works for good, all things, all things for good for those who love him or called according to his purpose. Our friend is suffering, just pull out our Romans 8, 28 stamp and there you go. God's got a plan. Instead, she weeps. She weeps with her. It's a gift to have somebody weep with you. And that's what we need. But not only does she weep with her, she refuses to leave her. She's with her. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. She refuses to leave her. She's with her. She's with her in her pain. Refuses to leave. And then in verse 22, they come back to this little place called Bethlehem. And it's barley harvest time. Just kind of like, all right, why'd you tell us that at the end of the story? Barley harvest time. Because barley harvest is when everything is going to change. Their story is about to totally change. And they've come back at just the right time. God brought them back at just the right time, which is barley harvest time. Because Ruth is going to go out. This next chapter, sorry, spoiler alert. I'm going to tell you how, this, how the rest of the story goes. You should read it though. But she goes out at barley harvest and she meets a man named Boaz. And it's like the perfect timing for her to meet him. And he's kind of the perfect guy for her to meet. Not only because he's kind of within the, structure, the social structure of the way that Israel and the ancient Near East operated, that he was the right person for them to meet and that he could kind of redeem them and bring them into his family. Do you know who Boaz's mom was? Rahab. The, the woman that we talked about last week. Man, you know Boaz probably, he probably saw this Gentile, vulnerable, single woman with different eyes because of his mom. He knew his mom's story. And now in walks Ruth, vulnerable, Gentile, single woman. And God has Boaz waiting for her there. God, God's providence is all through this book. It's all through the sadnesses and the griefs and also the redemption. And the, the book ends with, the, with this, the birth of this boy named Obed. And the women of, the, of Bethlehem See Obed and they say to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. Man, what a beautiful, it's a beautiful story of redemption. But it's still hard. I mean, Naomi's husband and kids are still dead. 
And you still, maybe you're sitting here thinking like, okay, yeah, that's true. Like, why should I trust God? I mean, it's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of death in my life, maybe you would say. I don't see the big pretty ribbon to tie up all my pain and my grief and my suffering and my regrets. I don't see a big, I don't have a big bow to wrap around that. And you may never get that. That's the reality. On this side of heaven, we are not promised all the reasons and all the answers for all the suffering and all the grief that we've experienced. We're not promised that. And so I think a good question to ask then is, well, why then believe in God? Why follow him? Why trust in him? And listen, even though he doesn't give you all the reasons, he absolutely demonstrates that he's trustworthy. He's worthy of your trust. Because, this is huge, he doesn't stay removed from our story of grief and pain. We have a God who enters in. We have a God who becomes man. There's no other religion like that. We have a God who comes into our world. We have a God who weeps. There's no other God like that. We, got, we have a God who weeps over our pain and our suffering. And just like Ruth, Jesus shows up in Bethlehem. Just like Ruth, Jesus becomes a foreigner when his family flees to Egypt. Just like Ruth, Jesus weeps with those who weep. Just like Ruth, God has not left us without a redeemer in Christ. Jesus is so committed to taking away our sin and our suffering and pain that he comes to earth so that like Ruth, Jesus can say, where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. God comes and is buried in a tomb for three days because he's so invested in redeeming us. He's so invested in killing our pain and our suffering and death itself. That's why he's trustworthy. He's entered into the story. He's demonstrated that while we don't know all the reasons for our suffering, that there is no one more invested in removing, removing our suffering than the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of all creation stoops so low as to become one of us. He leaves heaven, he dies and is buried, and he rises again. So the way that we move on from bitterness, y'all, it's first be honest. Please be honest with God, be honest with yourself, and then look at him. Look at his provision. Look at his plan. I mean, Naomi is standing in Bethlehem grieving that she's lost her son and little does she know that God himself is going to send his own son in the very city that she's standing in and that God himself will lose his son to redeem our regrets, our sadness, and our grief. God is trustworthy. He's given us hope. And so if you're feeling, if you're here today and you're feeling bitter or full of, of regret or you're in pain or you're grieved, I want you to look at Naomi's story. I want you to see that God is with her. He's present with her in her grief. He shows up. It's Advent. He, God shows up. 
God comes into the world so that her future grief will be remedied. And he shows up to redeem stories like hers, and he can redeem a story like yours. He welcomes us to ask him, to ask him to redeem us. And by faith in the Lord Jesus, he will. So come to him. Let me pray. Father, um, we do ask that you would help us to see uh, just how much you care about our grief and our pain. We pray that you would give us honesty with you and with ourselves about our grief and pain. We pray that you would show up in it just as you showed up in Naomi and Ruth's grief and pain. And we thank you that you did this fully in um, the person of Jesus. Would you turn our eyes to him this Christmas season? Uh, May we see that you show up in the lives of people like Ruth and Naomi and the lives of people like us. And we pray that you would help us to worship you because of that. In Jesus' name, amen.